New York, this is Democracy Now! What happened to Henrietta Lacks represents a long, long history of experimentation and exploitation of Black people in biomedical research, grounded in the myth of biological race that white scientists invented to justify enslaving Black people. The family of Henrietta Lacks, a Black cancer patient whose cells were taken by Johns Hopkins University Hospital without her consent in 1951, has settled with pharmaceutical company Thermo Fisher Scientific. We'll speak to University of Pennsylvania professor Dorothy Roberts about Henrietta Lacks and other issues, including the criminalization of pregnancy following the overturn of Roe v. Wade. Then to the pioneering legal scholar Kimberly Crenshaw. We'll talk to her about attacks on the teaching of history by Florida governor and presidential candidate Ron DeSantis and others. Nobody can be surprised when suddenly this effort to stump out a critical race theory turns out to be an effort to make anti-racism unspeakable, to make uh, queer studies undoable, to make intersectionality one of the most uh, widespread concepts across the disciplines, something that college-directed students cannot uh, uh, take or can only take uh, if the states allow them to. We'll also speak to Professor Crenshaw about her new book, Say Her Name, Black Women's Stories of Police Violence and Public Silence. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Niger, leaders of the military coup have shut down the country's airspace, citing possible imminent military action from their neighbors after a Sunday deadline to reinstate the ousted president, Mohamed Bazoum, expired. The deadline was issued by the West African bloc ECOWAS, which has condemned the coup alongside international powers, including the U.S. and the former colonizer, France. But many Nigerians have voiced support for the military leaders and strong strongly reject any foreign intervention. Protesters have been taking to the streets since the July 26 coup. If ECOWAS or French forces decide to attack our country before reaching the presidential palace, they will have to walk over our bodies, spill our blood, and we'll do it with pride, because we don't have another country. We only have Niger. Since July 26th, our country has decided to take charge of its independence and sovereignty, and this is our way of demonstrating it. Media reported this weekend Niger's coup generals requested defense help from the Russian mercenary Wagner Group in the face of possible military intervention. Burkina Faso and Mali, which also have been taken over by the military following coups, previously warned any attacks on Niger would be tantamount to a declaration of war against their countries as well. Niger is a major supplier of uranium to France and the European Union. Ukraine says Russian strikes have killed three people in Kherson and Kharkiv. Meanwhile, Moscow said it shot down a drone near the capital Sunday, while Ukrainian attacks hit bridges linking Crimea with Russian-occupied parts of Kherson. On Friday, Ukrainian drones hit a Russian tanker in the Black Sea and a Russian port. On Saturday, Russian strikes hit a blood transfusion center, which Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky called a war crime. The intensified attacks on the battlefield 
come as officials from around the world met in Saudi Arabia for peace talks. Forty different countries were at the talks, including the U.S., China, and nations from the global south. Russia was not present. Ukraine and other countries hailed the talks as progress. The few concrete steps were taken. Ukrainian peace activist Yuri Shelyazhenko was charged by the Ukrainian government with justifying Russian aggression days after his apartment was raided and searched. Shelyazhenko, member of the Ukrainian pacifist movement and World Beyond War, has vocally opposed any escalation of the conflict through fighting or sanctions. He spoke Sunday of his persecution by Ukrainian authorities. During a year, security service secretly surveilled me tried to find any links with Russian agents, found nothing, but still convinced I am the enemy because of my advocacy of peace by peaceful means, of ceasefire and peace talks to stop senseless bloodshed and destruction. Yuri Shalyazhenko also said he would remain in Ukraine and continue his peace work from behind bars if he's imprisoned. You can see our interviews with Yuri at democracynow.org. A Russian court sentenced imprisoned opposition leader Alexei Navalny to another 19 years after convicting him of extremism charges during a closed-door trial. The Kremlin critic and nationalist politician, who's already serving an 11-year term, said the charges are politically motivated and asked his supporters to keep resisting Putin's government and its crackdown on dissent. Navalny wrote of the new sentence, quote, The number does not matter. Like many political prisoners, I am sitting on a life sentence. In Pakistan, former Prime Minister Imran Khan has been arrested and sentenced to three years in prison for illegally selling state gifts. Khan has denied this and the dozens of other charges that were brought against him since he was removed in a no-confidence vote in April of last year. Before his arrest, Khan called on his supporters to keep protesting. Sort of icky requester. I have only one appeal. Don't sit silently at home. I am struggling for you and for the country and your children's future. Khan's lawyer has accused Pakistan of undeclared martial law in their politically motivated targeting of the former leader who will likely be barred from national elections that are supposed to take place this year. In other news from Pakistan, a train derailment in the southern Sindh province Sunday killed at least 30 people and injured dozens. The death toll could rise as rescue operations continue. In India, opposition Congress Party leader Rahul Gandhi has been reinstated to parliament after the Supreme Court suspended his defamation conviction. Gandhi was suspended and sentenced to two years in prison in March for criticizing Prime Minister Narendra Modi. The suspension of the case means Gandhi will be able to run against Modi in the 2024 election. In the occupied West Bank, Israeli forces killed at least five Palestinians over the weekend. Three people were shot dead Sunday after Israeli soldiers opened fire at their vehicle at the Janine refugee camp. Just two days earlier, 18-year-old Mahmoud Abusan was killed by Israeli forces during a raid in the city of Tulkarim. Later that Friday, 19-year-old Kusai Matan was murdered by armed Israeli settlers who stormed the village of Burqa near Ramallah. Two suspects have been arrested, praised by Israel's national security. Minister Itamar Ben-Gavir as heroes. Leila Ghanem, governor of Ramallah, cited the complicity of the international community in Israel's abuses against Palestinians as she spoke following the killing. Today there was a real massacre in Burqa. The settlers burnt cars and the child was assassinated from zero distance according to witnesses. And we have to call him a child and use the correct words and labels for these crimes. 
Saudi Arabia is urging its citizens to immediately leave Lebanon in recent violent clashes at the largest Palestinian refugee camp located in the southern city of Sudan. The U.K. has also advised people to avoid most travel in Lebanon, while Kuwait warned its citizens to avoid areas of security disturbances. At least 13 people have been killed after fighting erupted between rival Palestinian groups inside the overcrowded Ain al-Hilwe refugee camp last week. At least six migrants have died, including a woman and her one-year-old child, after three boats sank in the Mediterranean Sea, one off Tunisia's Kerhana Islands and two near the Italian island of Lampedusa. Dozens of people are still missing. Most of the migrants are from sub-Saharan Africa. Separately, Tunisian authorities said they'd found the bodies of another 10 people on a beach near the port city of Svax, which has become a hub for migrants hoping to reach Europe for refuge. Here in the United States, a federal appeals court Friday struck down a Jim Crow-era law in Mississippi that permanently revoked voting rights for people with certain felony convictions. The conservative panel ruled two to one. The law, which disproportionately affects black Mississippians, is unconstitutional, writing, quote, in the last— 50 years, a national consensus has emerged among the state legislatures against permanently disenfranchising those who've satisfied their judicially imposed sentences and thus repaid their debts to society. Mississippi stands as an outlier among its sister states, bucking a clear national trend in our nation against permanent disenfranchisement, unquote. A Texas judge ruled Friday, Texas's abortion ban is too restrictive in cases of dangerous pregnancy complications, and doctors must be allowed to perform abortions in such instances without risk of criminal prosecution. Hours later, Texas's attorney general's office filed an appeal effectively blocking the order. Though the initial order was blocked, the Center for Reproductive Rights and the women who brought the case celebrated the ruling and said the plaintiff's testimonies helped shine a, shine a spot light on the cruelty of the law. The trial is expected to clarify the use of abortions in medical emergencies scheduled for March next year. Meanwhile, in Ohio, early voters are turning out in droves in a special election over a Republican-led measure that would make it harder for Ohio voters to pass constitutional amendments, including a ballot measure which would guarantee Ohioans the constitutional right to abortion. The final day of voting is tomorrow, Tuesday. The FDA Friday approved the first pill to treat postpartum depression, which affects around one in seven people after childbirth. Doctors say only 10 percent of those receive adequate care. Zoranolone, to be sold under the name Zerzave, is manufactured by Biogen and Sage Therapeutics and is taken for just two weeks. But mental health experts warn, while the pill could help many people, it's not a cure-all for postpartum mood disorders. Behavioral scientist Judith Blanc noted the many contributing factors, including poor institutional support and policies for new parents with women of color and of lower socioeconomic status being the most vulnerable. Blanc told The Washington Post, quote, we need longer maternity leave, more flexible work schedules and universal child care, she said. Here in New York City, police have charged a 17-year-old with murder as a hate crime for the fatal stabbing of O'Shea Sibley at a Brooklyn gas station late last month. 28-year-old Sibley, a black gay man, was a dancer and choreographer. He and his friends were dancing in Beyonce's Renaissance album as they filled up on gas on a Saturday night when they were approached and harassed by a group of people told them to stop dancing. The group yelled homophobic and racist slurs as the dancers defiantly carried on before the teens stabbed O'Shea Sibley.
Vigils and protests have taken place across New York City since then. Mourners gathered at the mobile station Friday where Sibley was killed, while others have posted videos of themselves voguing in tribute to O'Shea Sibley. The influential Harvard law professor and civil rights scholar Charles Ogletree has died at the age of 70. At one of the country's most prominent law schools, he taught the future president and first lady, Barack and Michelle Obama. He also represented Anita Hill when she accused U.S. Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas of sexual harassment, defended rapper Tupac Shakur in criminal and civil cases, and fought for reparations for survivors of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. In 2010, Ogletree joined us on Democracy Now! to discuss his book, The Presumption of Guilt, the arrest of Henry Louis Gates Jr. and race, class, and crime in America. The title of the presumption of guilt is to remind us we presume guilty of some people without knowing the facts. We do it based on race, on class, on clothing, on where you drive, where you walk, where you shop, where you eat. And that's why the presumption of guilt is the title to remind people, let's not make judgments about people. Let's judge them by, as I said before, the content of their character, not skin color. That's the problem. Harvard Law Professor Charles Ogletree, dead at the age of 70. Donald Trump has been given a deadline at 5 p.m. today, Monday, to respond to special counsel Jack Smith's request for a protective order. District Judge Tanya Chutkin, who is presiding over Trump's case related to the overturning of the 2020 election, issued the deadline as the Justice Department attempts to curb Trump's public comments, including potentially confidential evidence that could intimidate witnesses. On Friday, Trump posted on his Truth Social site, if you go after me, I'm coming after you. Separately, Donald Trump pleaded not guilty Friday to additional charges in the federal case around his mishandling of classified documents. A woman is suing the city of Detroit after she was wrongfully arrested for robbery and carjacking over faulty facial recognition technology. Portia Woodruff was eight months pregnant and getting her two children ready for school when six police officers showed up at her home in February to take her into custody. Woodruff was detained and questioned for at least 11 hours before being charged and released on a $100,000 bond. She says she started having contractions in jail, had to be taken to the hospital after her release due to dehydration. The case was dropped a month later. Woodruff is the first woman known to be falsely identified as a criminal suspect due to facial recognition technology. At least five other people have also been wrongfully arrested due to the technology, all of them black. Activists have long warned facial recognition technology and artificial intelligence would exacerbate racial inequity and in policing, disproportionately impacting black people. And Sunday marked the 78th anniversary of the U.S. dropping of the world's first atomic bomb on Hiroshima, killing some 140,000 people. Three days later, August 9, 1945, the U.S. dropped another atomic bomb on the Japanese city of Nagasaki, killing at least 74,000 people. During the annual Hiroshima Peace Memorial Ceremony, Japanese leaders called on nations around the world to work towards nuclear disarmament. This is Hiroshima Mayor Kazumi Matsui. Leaders around the world must confront the fact that the theory of nuclear deterrence is folly and that it is necessary to quickly begin concrete efforts to lead us from our harsh reality to an ideal world. 
And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I am Amy Goodman. Coming up, the family of Henrietta Lacks, a black cancer patient whose cells, known as the HeLa cells, were taken by Johns Hopkins University without her consent in 1951. The family has now settled with a pharmaceutical company. We'll speak to University of Pennsylvania professor Dorothy Roberts about the Henrietta Lacks case and other issues, including the criminalization of pregnancy. Pregnancy following the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Stay with us. Beyonce. During our break, we're showing video from Friday's vigil at the New York City gas station where O'Shea Sibley was killed while voguing to Beyonce. The teenager charged with killing Sibley has been charged with murder as a hate crime. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show looking at the fight for reproductive rights. On Friday, a Texas judge ruled the state's abortion ban was too restrictive in cases of dangerous pregnancy complications. The judge also ruled doctors must be allowed to perform abortions in such instances without risk of criminal prosecution. But within hours of the ruling, Texas's attorney general's office filed an appeal effectively blocking the order. In July, the court in Austin heard testimony from women who sued Texas over its abortion ban. In a dramatic moment, one of the plaintiffs, Samantha Cassiano, vomited on the stand as she recounted her traumatic experience. Cassiano was forced to carry out her pregnancy even after receiving a diagnosis of an encephaly, a severe congenital disorder that results in a baby being born without portions of his brain and skull. Another plaintiff, Elizabeth Weller, spoke at a news conference. I was sent home to wait for my baby to die or for my infection to start showing physical symptoms, even though they were already there. But I wasn't sick enough to get the care that I needed. There is no statement of pro-life in this state when you send me home to wait for my baby to die inside of me and for me to wait for myself to get to a point where I have to gamble my uterus and gamble my life and gamble any future possibility of becoming pregnant. It's not pro-life. In a sense, it's almost pro-torture. 
The Texas lawsuit was brought by the Center for Reproductive Rights. It's believed to be the first lawsuit brought by women denied abortion since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last year. We're joined now by Dorothy Roberts, director of the University of Pennsylvania Program on Race, Science and Society. She's long warned against the criminalization of pregnancy and has been called a pioneer in the reproductive justice movement. She's author of several books, including Fatal Invention, How Science, Politics and Big Business Recreate Race in the 21st Century and Killing the Black Body, race, reproduction, and the meaning of liberty. Professor Roberts, welcome to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Can you talk about the significance of the federal judge's ruling uh, striking down a part of the Texas abortion ban? Uh, It's good to be on your program. Thanks so much. Uh, I think this is a significant ruling in the sense that the testimonies of the women we just heard part of shows how cruel, in fact, I think the word of torture is appropriate, that bans on abortion are the kind of position they put doctors in to have to gamble the lives of pregnant people in order to avoid prosecution. I think it's one of the most unethical, inhumane aspects of compelling births, which is what abortion bans do, is this way of completely devaluing the life of the pregnant patient and putting doctors in a position to decide how sick, how close to death should I let my patient go before I perform a needed medical procedure for fear of being prosecuted, fear of a crime. Now, having said that, I think it's also important to note that That is only one of the many, many cruelties, injustices of banning abortion. I I think it is a mistake to just focus on cases where the patient's life is at risk uh, and to ban those portions or, or overturn those portions of laws restricting access to abortion or banning it completely. What these laws do is compel people to give birth. They are fundamental, atrocious violations of people's autonomy. And they are a form of misogyny against women who are the main people who become pregnant, but also end up criminalizing pregnancy in general by uh, any birthing people or even potentially birthing people are at risk of arrest and prosecution and incarceration if they don't meet the standard of the state for producing a healthy baby. Uh, And so uh, let me explain what I mean by that. We see, and we've seen for decades, this is something I warned about back in 1997 in my book, Killing the Black Body, that it's not only prosecuting women for terminating a pregnancy, but also prosecuting women who are accused of being pregnant and using drugs or some other conduct that the state claims is harmful to a fetus. And we've seen women incarcerated for stillbirths. These are women who wanted to give birth, but are now punished because they didn't produce a healthy baby. Uh, We see the, the, excuse that the Supreme Court gave that 
you could just turn over your child to a safe haven, turn over the baby for adoption. This idea that people can be forced to turn over their babies for adoption, which is a complete lie. It's false. Most women end up keeping their babies when they're prevented from terminating a pregnancy, only making their lives more their struggle to take care of their families, which puts them at risk of having their children taken from them. So I, I think this is an important victory, although it's been stayed on appeal, but important victory for me because it shows the cruelty and torture of bans on abortion, but it doesn't capture the full extent of harm. These bans should be overturned as unconstitutional altogether. So I wanted to turn to Ohio. Tomorrow, Tuesday, Ohio residents will vote on a single statewide ballot item called Issue 1, which would raise the threshold to amend the Ohio Constitution from a simple majority to 60 percent of the vote. Republican state lawmakers introduced Issue 1 in order to make it harder for voters to enshrine abortion rights in the state's constitution when they vote on a proposed pro-choice amendment in the November general election. This is very interesting. It's a little convoluted. They're not voting on the abortion referendum tomorrow. But Republicans are trying to uh, invalidate that referendum to be put to the Ohio to Ohioans in November. It was funded by Richard Ellis Uline, um, who is— uh, uh, out from outside the state, an Illinois billionaire. Um, uh, can you talk about the significance of what's taking place, this vote tomorrow? Well, we're in a battle in this nation uh, on this question of being free or being compelled to give birth, uh, a question which we could trace all the way back to the institution of slavery and a question that was on the ballot or on uh, before Congress when it passed the Reconstruction Amendments, uh, whether we're going to have a nation that's free or a nation that compels people to give birth uh, for the benefit of the state. And so part of that battle is those of us who want a free nation where you can't be compelled to give birth and where there actually should be support for reproductive justice, support for our reproductive autonomy, are being then uh, uh, protested against and uh, trying to put impediments for us to allow the people of states to protect the right to abortion. So this is a ploy by uh, the political right wing and Republicans uh, included to make it harder for the people of states to take legislative efforts uh, to ensure the right to abortion. Uh, so, you know, when the Supreme Court says, well, uh, what all we're doing is giving the freedom to states to decide the question of abortion, uh, that's actually not true because now you have the right wing trying to put barriers in front of people passing laws or amendments to constitutions 
that enshrined the right to reproductive freedom. I should say Richard Uline and his wife, Elizabeth uh, Uline, are uh, billionaire business people, founders of Uline, conservative donors. He is also heir to the Schlitz Brewing fortune. But I want to turn right now to a story you know well. The family of Henrietta Lacks, a prominent, uh, a black cancer patient whose cells were taken by Johns Hopkins University Hospital without her consent in 1951, has reached a settlement over the unethical use of her cells with pharmaceutical company Thermo Fisher Scientific. Henrietta Lacks' family has denounced the racist medical system that allowed the biotech company to make billions in profit from the HeLa cell line. Gila Henrietta Lacks, which helped produce remedies for multiple diseases, including the first polio vaccine. Details of the settlement were not made public, but the plaintiffs celebrated the lawsuit's resolution last Tuesday on Henrietta, Henrietta Lacks's birthday. This is her grandson, Alfred Lacks. Our family member, our loved one, Henrietta Lacks, 103 years old today. And as Ben said, today, it couldn't have been a more fitting day for her to have justice, yeah. for her family to have relief. It was a long fight. It was a long fight, over 70 years. And Henrietta Lacks gets her day. The Lacks family announced its lawsuit in 2021, 70 years to the day after Henrietta Lacks died. This is her granddaughter, Kimberly Lacks, speaking alongside attorney Ben Crump in 2021. I think about my grandmother, as I said before, laying in that hospital room and how they came in there when she had radiation going through her body and horrific pain. But all they were concerned about was taking cell tissues from her body. That's terrible. Terrible. And then on top of that, no one in the family had any idea. They act like she was alone. They didn't reach out to her husband, her her aunt, her cousins, anyone to let them know what was taking place. That's disgraceful. And that definitely is racism, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. It was We was treated, the family was treated, she was treated horribly. My father, one thing I can say about him is he's a sweet man. And he always said that who wouldn't want a pocket full of money? Anybody, everybody wants money, but it's a bigger picture. But he did say to me, and he's sickly, but he was very happy and excited to know that we're finally going to get justice, finally going to get justice for Henrietta Lacks, for his mother. The Thermo Fisher settlement could now lead other companies to examine how they're profiting from biological specimens and ask how ethically their samples were collected. In 2010, the publication of journalist Rebecca Skloot's book, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, pushed many institutions to address their role in exploiting Lacks, including the National Institutes of Health, or NIH, which is the largest public funder of biomedical research. The NIH opened a dialogue with the Lacks family, which led to a HeLa cell working group to improve transparency by reviewing proposals for projects that use the full DNA sequence of cells. 
Still with us, Dorothy Roberts, director of the University of Pennsylvania Program on Race, Science and Society, who's followed this case closely. In 2014, she gave the Henrietta Lacks Memorial Lecture, interestingly, at the Johns Hopkins Institute for Clinical and Translational Research. Uh, Professor Roberts, talk about the significance. We don't know how much the settlement is, but the significance of the contribution Henrietta Lacks made, perhaps unknowingly, to global science and medicine and the number of people she helped. Yes, I, I like the way her granddaughter said there's a bigger picture to this. Uh, this settlement is long overdue compensation to the descendants of Henrietta Lacks, not only for taking her cells without her consent and knowledge, but also compensation for the really immeasurable medical advances her cells have given humanity and that multiple biotech companies, including the one that settled with the Lacks family, uh, have reaped in profits from those advances. Uh, and so to me, this settlement represents a broader message that the Lacks families fight for decades for racial justice in science and medicine sends to us. It's a form of reparations, I think, for all of us for the way in which biomedical science has used Black people's bodies for centuries in experimentation without without consent, without benefit, direct benefit to the people who contributed to the science. Although it's benefited millions and millions of people, maybe everyone uh, in this nation certainly, and then globally has benefited in some way from these remarkable cells that multiply endlessly and can be used in multiple ways uh, and have been used by science for the development of po the polio vaccine, the COVID vaccine, uh, HPV vi uh, vaccine. Uh, the cells went up in space to see what uh, the effect of uh, weightlessness would be on them. They've contributed to in vitro fertilization. Uh, I could go on and on. They are absolutely irreplaceable and remarkable and immeasurable in what they've contributed. And I, I want to emphasize, though, what the Lex families fight for compensation and for justice means more broadly, because I think it's important to understand that what happened to Henrietta Lacks didn't just happen to her. It's part of a long history of experimentation and exploitation of Black people in biomedical research. And that has been grounded on a racist myth of Black biological difference. Uh, this is a myth that human beings are naturally divided into biologically distinct races. And that was invented by Western scientists in order to justify enslaving Black people and experimenting on Black people's bodies. And Henrietta Lacks' story itself refutes this ideology, which has underlied so much of biomedical research uh, in the United States. This idea that Black bodies are different innately uh, and, in fact, inferior 
and therefore uh, need to be enslaved or need to be regulated uh, and can be used for experimentation because they're so innately distinct. But yet her cells have been used to benefit all of humanity. So her story itself refutes this really toxic, damaging, horrible, underlying racist ideology that has fueled much of science in the United States and, you know, in particular, biomedical research. Uh, and then there's other implications as well, uh, not just for acquiring consent. I mean, the, the Lex family got a, a settlement earlier with the National Institutes of Health, a, an agreement that they could have more control over how uh, Henrietta Lacks' cells were used. And so it raises these questions about how scientists today continue to, uh, to take uh, parts of people's bodies, including their cells, without informed consent. Uh, and also it raises issues about access to healthcare and the benefits of scientific research, where so often scientists go into black communities to use black patients, incarcerated people, children in foster care for their studies without engaging the communities in the design of the research or giving back to the people who live there. And all of this is part of the fight that the Lex family has been waging for justice. And I, I just think it's a wonderful way that uh, they have given all of us through Henrietta Lacks' cells, but also through their fight for justice to examine these deep issues of racism, this deep legacy of racism in biomedical research and science more broadly. Professor Roberts, I wanted to end by asking you about this shocking story out of Detroit, Michigan, involving a woman named Portia Woodruff. She was eight months pregnant when police arrested her at her door for robbery and carjacking. Six officers showed up at her home as she was getting her daughters ready for school. She was held for 11 hours, released on a $100,000 bond. She says she started having contractions in jail, had to be taken to the hospital after release due to dehydration. A month later, prosecutors dropped the case because the Detroit police had made the arrest based on a faulty facial recognition match. According to the ACLU, Woodruff is at least the sixth person to report being falsely accused of a crime as a result of facial recognition technology, all six people black. Uh, Portia Woodruff is now suing the city of Detroit. The New York Times had a major story on this, saying Portia Woodruff thought the police who showed up at her door to arrest her for carjacking were joking. She's the first woman known to be wrongfully accused as a result of facial recognition technology. She was 32 years old. Uh, they asked her to step outside because she was under arrest for robbery and carjacking. She looked at them. She pointed to her stomach. She was eight months pregnant. She said, are you kidding Professor Roberts, can you talk about the significance of this and what she went through in that last month of pregnancy? This story captures so much of what we've been talking about, so much about the devaluation of Black people's lives, Black women's lives, and the way in which these deep myths about Black 
biological difference and inferiority and the need for regulation and surveillance get embedded into technologies. They're embedded in medical technologies. They're embedded in policing technologies. They're embedded in artificial intelligence algorithms and predictive analytics. And so uh, just you know, one piece of this is the fact that the six cases we know of false arrests based on false AI facial recognition are uh, involving Black people. Now, that's not an accident. That's because racism gets embedded into the technologies. It's in the databases because the databases are based on police arrests already or uh, police action, which we know is racially biased or targeted at Black people. And so the data itself uh, gets uh, embedded with racism. Uh, the way in which algorithms are created have assumptions that are racist. Uh, with uh, the facial recognition, uh, the way in which the recognition technology is created uh, is more likely to target Black faces. This, all of this has been shown in research. So there's this idea that AI is going to be more objective than the biased decision-making of judges and police and prosecutors. But if it embeds prior biased decisions, it's going to produce these oppressive outcomes. And also, if it's being used by police departments that are racist, they're going to be used in racist ways. And that gets me to the next point, which is the way in which she was treated. She, as a, a obviously eight-month pregnant woman, uh, was treated in cruelly and inhumanely by these police officers, which reflects the way in which police interact with Black communities in general, but also the devaluation of Black women's childbearing. Again, back to this uh, point we started out with, the devaluation of the autonomy, the, the worth, the humanity of Black women. And a key aspect of that, in fact, a key aspect of the subjugation of Black people in general has been the devaluation of Black childbearing, the idea that Black women passed down negative, depraved, antisocial traits to their children. Almost uh, sometimes it's stated in biological terms. And that devaluation of Black women, uh, especially in terms of their childbearing, is part of the basis for reproductive servitude, which we were talking about earlier, but also part of the reason why Black women are three times more likely to die from pregnancy-related causes, maternal mortality, than white women in America. So this one incident uh, reveals this deeply entangled way in which carceral systems in America rely rely on this myth of biological race and innate 
inferiority of black people, which is so deeply embedded that many people just take it for granted. Professor Roberts, uh, we're going to continue this discussion with our next <laughs> okay. guest. And we thank you All so right. much for being with us. Professor Dorothy Roberts is director of the University of Pennsylvania Program on Race, Science and Society, author of a number of books, including Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families and How Abolition Can Build a Safer World. Next up, we'll speak with the pioneering legal scholar Kimberly Crenshaw, author of the new book, Say Her Name, Black Women's Stories of Police Violence and Public Silence. Stay with us. Destiny's Child. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We spend the rest of the hour with acclaimed scholar, activist Kimberly Crenshaw. She has a new book out honoring the stories of 177 black women and girls killed by police between 1975 and last year, who then had their lives erased from memory when their deaths were not covered or misrepresented by the media or were excluded from textbooks. She focused in detail on nine stories. In her recent L.A. Times op-ed headlined, Black Women Are the Unseen Victims of Police Brutality, Why Aren't We Talking About It?, she notes black women and girls are more more likely than any other group of women to be killed by the police, and, quote, the confluence of factors that converge to make black women and girls the most vulnerable of all women to state violence also conspire to erase their loss of life, both in individual cases and as a group. Professor Kimberly Crenshaw is executive director of the African-American Policy Forum, professor of law at UCLA and Columbia University, and author of the new book, Say Her Name, Black Women's Stories of Police Violence and Public Silence. Professor Crenshaw, welcome back to Democracy Now! The, so sadly, your book is more relevant today than ever. Talk about why you wrote it and tell us some of the stories of these women that we should know. Well, Amy, it's such a pleasure to be back and a special honor to be on with my sister-in-law, Dorothy Roberts, who effectively laid out exactly what the conditions are uh, that contribute to Black women's vulnerability uh, to state violence and the erasure of that vulnerability. We call it the loss of the loss. We call it the marginalization of Black women because their stories about violence and their stories about experiencing anti-Black racism just have not been at the center of how we imagine uh, police violence, how we imagine assault on Black bodies. And yet, it is at the core of so many dimensions of anti-Black racism. So uh, we've heard about the uh, Henrietta Lacks uh, uh, story uh, and the um, exploitation of her cells. We also heard about the exploitation of Black women's productive labor. Um, black women were the source of American wealth. 
uh, we are, we were, it's through our bodies uh, that uh, the slave population came into existence, which is the predicate uh, for American uh, a superpower status. And yet we are the last ones to be talked about. We are the last ones to be elevated. We are the last ones uh, to be defended and, and marched on behalf of uh, when we uh, are killed, when we are, are falsely accused, when we die disproportionately in childbirth, and when uh, our productive labor uh, benefits uh, the entire country. So say her name is the one thing, the imperative that we can do something about. We can't give these women back to their families, but we can make sure that they are not lost to history. And we can make sure that the circumstances under which Black women suffer are part of our consciousness about what in the society needs to be addressed in order to really achieve a fully inclusive democracy. So if you can talk about some of the women and you talk about um, the erasure at so many levels, um, uh, the story of their lives at all, the stories of knowing about them after they've lost their lives at the hands of um, uh, at the hands of police, share that storytelling that you say is so important. Well, one of the things that we wanted to do with telling the stories is both broaden the circumstances so people understand that some Black women are killed not because they were engaged in any kind of lawlessness, but because their family called for help. Uh, so Tanisha Anderson was killed just a few days uh, before Tamir Rice was by the Cleveland Police Department. Why? Because she was having a mental health episode. Her family called 911 thinking they were going to get help. Instead, they got armed officers who came and body slammed her and trying to force her uh, into a confined space and then knelt on her. Uh, George Floyd style, while holding a gun on the family, preventing them from coming to her uh, assistance and aid. Uh, Michelle Cousseau, also killed within seconds of police arriving on a mental health pickup order. This was five days after Mike Brown. So these are all of the ways, some of the ways that Black people lose their lives when they have to encounter police, police coming, not trained to do with the, deal with the situation, police having a stereotypes about Black people, not just Black men, Black people. The person who killed Michelle Cousseau said that his life was in danger from this five-foot-two woman because of the look in her eye. So what we're looking at is stereotypes about Black women in which they're never seen as damsels in distress. They're just as likely to be seen as threats as their male counterparts, which is why, although Black women are less than 10 percent of women uh, population, they account for more than one fifth of people who have been killed, women who have been killed by the police. So these are the stories that we need to have in order to see the full expanse of vulnerability. Only when you have the full story can you actually demand the kind of transformations that are necessary to protect people against this particular risk. Professor Crenshaw, you are now in Martha's Vineyard, um, where you've just completed a session uh, on critical race theory. You coined this term. Can you talk about it? And of course, it's the subject, I mean, uh, of, uh, of 
It is the target, I should say, uh, for the second in running for the Republican nomination for president uh, after Donald Trump, uh, the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis. You have traveled through Florida talking about this issue. Uh, talk about how critical race theory relates to this kind of erasure that we're seeing here and how you're trying to fight against it. Well, critical race theory has been weaponized by the far right uh, folks like Christopher Rufo uh, as a container for all of the uh, anxieties, all of the discomfort, uh, all of the retrenchment, the reaction uh, to the anti-racist demonstrations, to what happened after George Floyd. Uh, it's a convenient way of capturing that anxiety. It just so happens that, though, critical race theory, it really is something. It's the study of how racial inequality is reproduced, is embedded in our institutions, uh, in our structures, more broadly across society. So the goal of the African-American Policy Forum's Critical Race Theory Summer School for the past four years is to is to frame critical race theory in ways that people can recognize it. So when people give their children a talk, for example, um, the talk is not about the birds and the bees. It's what Black parents must tell their children for them to increase the odds that they will survive an encounter with police. It's the wisdom. It's the knowledge. It's the way that we've had to encounter a world that is not colorblind. Intersectionality also tells us that we've got to give that talk not just to our sons, but to our daughters. That's what Say Her Name is all about. So in the Vineyard this year, we began Critical Race Theory Summer School with two live panels. They can be found on YouTube. The point is to be able to say that the attack on Black knowledge is an, an attack on Black freedom, but not just Black freedom. It is an attack on our multiracial democracy. That's what January 6th was all about. That's what this upcoming prosecution about is all about. This is why the stories that we tell about our lives are essential to this entire multiracial democracy. Explain how it links directly to January 6th. Of course, we're speaking to you just after uh, President Trump was indicted yet again, this time around trying to basically foment a coup d'etat, overturn the 2020 election. Well, let's remember one of the most striking images of January 6th was the image of the Confederate flag marching through the Capitol. It had never happened before. And that wasn't just happenstance. If you look at the actual rationale for the claim that the election was stolen, where do they focus their complaint? It's on largely black, brown populated cities. Atlanta, Philadelphia, Milwaukee, right? Detroit. The argument is that these votes were illegitimate votes. These uh, poll workers were illegitimate poll workers. This is a deep undercurrent in American society that has always felt that the participation of non-white people, and, in, in, and particularly Black people, was somehow contradictory, somehow not consistent with the idea of who this democracy is supposed to be for and about. 
our Supreme Court basically said uh, that African-Americans can never be citizens because of their enslavability. What was done to us is a feature of who we are. So it's not an accident that this was the argument that Trump was able uh, to dog whistle. It might not even be a dog whistle. And and fortunately, um, at least as, as far as the allegations against him are concerned, we are using or seeing the uh, flashback using laws that were developed to address the ways in which conspiracies to rob us of our citizenship and right to vote still are on the books and still can be used to correct the situation. So let me ask you further about the Republican presidential contender, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who's doubled down on the Florida Board of Education's new rules that require educators to teach students that enslaved black people, quote, develop skills which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. Yep. Last month, Governor DeSantis defended the curriculum. I think that they're probably going to show um, some of the folks that eventually parlayed, uh, you know, being a blacksmith into into doing things later later in life. Um, but the reality is all of that is rooted in whatever is factual. They listed everything out. And if you have any questions about it, just ask the Department of Education. You can talk about those folks. But, I mean, these were scholars who put that together. It was not anything that was um, that was done politically. The NAACP has called Florida's new curriculum a, quote, sanitized and dishonest telling of the history of slavery in America. This comes as um, uh, as Ron Peary, one of DeSantis's appointees to oversight board of Disney's special tax district, is drawing attention for reportedly teaching a 2021 seminar in which he said, quote, whites were also slaves in America and cited discredited research to argue there was the Irish slave trade. Mean, meanwhile, CBS reports two of the nation's largest organizations that cater to black professionals say they're moving their annual conventions out of Florida because the governor and state lawmakers have become increasingly insensitive to people of color. The fraternity Alpha Phi Alpha said that their convention was scheduled to take place in Orlando, but the organization is now looking elsewhere because of, quote, Governor DeSantis's harmful racist and insensitive policies against the black community. Um, if you can respond to all of this. <laughs> well, we, we've been trying to respond to it for the last three years, Amy, but the attack on critical race theory, the anti-woke attack on anti-racism, it was always going here. This is what it is all about, the effort to both sides slavery, uh, the effort to basically say, look, at least slavery gave African skills. There was some benefit to it. This is an old ideology, and the very fact that people don't recognize it underscores how much ignorance there currently is about our own history. The idea that Black people were benefited, that somehow they would have been unmoored to any kind of productive labor had it not been for enslavement. This was the rationale for enslavement. This was the rationale for the Civil War. These are the ideas that the Daughters of the Confederacy tried to hardwire into our education system. So when there's a pushback against that and a broadening of our understanding of how enslavement was rationalized, how enslavement was based on on the uh, mass uh, uh, forced reproduction of black women, 
all of these facts that have been marginalized are now framed by the anti-woke cabal as indoctrination. They are counter-indoctrination. This is the true indoctrination. And finally, people are able to see it for what it's worth. And finally, Professor Kimberly Crenshaw, the news of the death of the Harvard law professor, the civil rights activist, uh, Charles Ogletree, at the age of 70 this past weekend. Can you mention, talk about his significance? Well, you know, I have a very special um, uh, relationship with uh, Professor Ogletree. Uh, I was part of Anita Hill's legal team and just was so um, overwhelmed and and um, moved by his willingness to defend her and to understand that even though she was a witness, she was going to be treated as a defendant. This is what we understood from the beginning about Black women's ability to testify, to tell the truth about their experiences. They are not seen, we are not seen as credible across the country, across all groups. His loss is um, unimaginable. And at the same time, we have to remember that he was a warrior for justice. We're going to have to leave it there. Professor Kimberly Crenshaw, author of Say Her Name, Black Women's Stories of Police Violence and Public Silence.